welcome to a very special episode of Fortune's Wheelhouse, in which we invite on the show the one and only much-referenced and cited Austin Kopic, friend to the show, frequent reference on the show, and now in-person visitor. Welcome to the wheelhouse, Austin. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Susie. Now, this is actually a continuation of a conversation that you can explore the first part of on Austin's podcast, Eavesdropping, correct? Correct. It's the, the long form is Eavesdropping at Midnight. It's a little clunky. Eavesdropping works just fine. But this this is literally we've been talking for about two hours. Yeah, at least. And we're, well, the recorded part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is taking place in Eatonville, Washington at the Veritas Genii Conference. And uh, the first half of the conversation was quite freewheeling. We talked about all kinds of divination and magic related subjects. And this part of the conversation is going to be a little bit more card specific, I guess, in the hopes that it's news you can use for our Fortune's Wheelhouse listeners. Actually, maybe we should start with a charming anecdote about what we were doing last night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was minding my own business. And I was also minding the delicious mead, which was on offer. That's true. And I was uh, suddenly, I was invited to play a few rounds of tarot rummy. Yeah, that's right. So this was actually not my idea, but a Fortune's Wheelhouse listener, Alex, hello out there. I ran into him in the social event area. And he asked me, have you ever played tarot rummy? And I said, I have no idea what that is. And then I realized that, in fact, I did know what that was because someone had uploaded a file to the Fortune's Wheelhouse Academy group like a year ago, and it was entitled Kabbalistic Eights, like crazy eights, Kabbalistic crazy all right, eights. All right. Yeah. So, uh, and I instantly realized as soon as he explained the rules of the game that um, this was what we were talking about. So call it tarot rummy, call it Kabbalistic eights or whatever you want to call it, but it's basically a correspondence game a pl- uh, um, where you try to get rid of your hand by throwing it onto the pile using whatever correspondences you know and or can justify to your teammates. <laughs> Justification was a crucial component of that at several important junctures. This is what I call an argue game with my kids. <laughs> but we were able to establish right at the outset that Tzadi is the star, so... It's true. You have to start somewhere. It's true. Well, <laughs> and I, uh, when we were talking about that, uh, a new justification for Tzadi being the star uh, mm-hmm. emerged for oh, me. Oh, yes, that's right. So if Tzadi is, is a hook, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fish hook. Yeah. Or the act of reaching with a fish, fish hook. Right. And yeah. so uh, that that is a structure with a very, very particular function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, once you're hooked to something, then you can pull it, right? And so Tsadi, if Tsadi is uh, related to the star card, and the star isn't just strictly giant inferno balls of gas, it is really <laughs> in many ways about relating meaningfully to the above, the above um, landing on the below, mm-hmm. right? As a crashed airplane or as a gentle rain, right? Mm-hmm. And so in Vedic astrology, all of the planets, as well as the north and south nodes, basically all relevant celestial things, are referred to by the term graha. And graha shares um, 
uh, shares a root with the English word grab. Graha gets translated as grab or seize. And they're literally what we're concerned with in astrology is those things which pull on you, mm-hmm. right? The, the sun pulling you in this direction or being pulled by the moon's tides. And so, you know, to, to use the image of a fish hook makes perfect sense. Yes, yes. And I, I, I think that that works really well with the star in the sense that, you know, stars are that which we navigate by from a distance, mm-hmm. you know, and although you never reach it, you have to reach for it in order to get where you're going. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You can, uh, by, yeah, I guess the, so if the stars can grab us, but we can also grab a hold of the stars and pull ourselves in that direction. Maybe that's the best simple definition of astrological magic ever spoken. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, you gotta, you yeah. cast that line and there needs to be a hook. Yes. So that, you know, the, to connect you between yourself and that point or, you know, for that point to, to claim you and, and pull you around into the, the shape of its archetype. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I got the star and the emperor this morning. So I feel that that was a hit. That's so funny. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. So whether or not you subscribe to the Hay or Tsadi school of the stars, uh, Kabbalistic attribution, about which you can read a very, very long article on our Patreon site, www.patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. Both are represented in the astral today. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit overview of correspondences, maybe a little bit, because you use Golden Dawn correspondences. You talked a little bit in our previous show about how you came to those. You still use them now, and you're going to be teaching them now, correct? Yep, all true. So, you know, why uh, why Golden Dawn correspondences for you? The simplest version of that would be because I know them and because they work and because the decks that I used were built with those in mind. I don't think that you should apply those to every single deck. I don't think that it is the grand ultimate system that will destroy all challengers, but I suppose there's a little bit of it. If it ain't broke Mm. um, with that for me, like it, um, I, my limitations with tarot are not a result of the correspondences. Right. Um, It, you know, uh, it does, uh, it it largely does everything I could ever hope for um, (laughs) it doing. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and it's very, it's very coherent. And I also internally, it's internally internally coherent. coherent. I would also say that it's coherent with the external realities, which the cards when thrown refer to, and there's a coherence between the cards that come up in readings and the position of things in people's charts, which I've looked at in relationship to each other for a very long time now. Yeah. And, you know, and it's fundamentally compatible with Western ceremonial magic tradition, should that matter to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I haven't used uh, tarot sneaks in to my um, to to my magical work from time to time. But it, uh, it's, um, it's not an ingredient that's in every dish I serve. I have, I've been known from time to time occasionally to sacrifice a card to add it to a spell, which of course changes the deck forever. It's a sacrifice. Yeah. But, uh, on rare occasions. And then I have some cards that just live on certain altars. Right. So, 
I'm curious about, you know, when you learned the, uh, when you learned the correspondences, the astrological correspondences for tarot, did you argue with them? Was there slippage? Oh, I think there's definitely slippage. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would use slippage exactly, but they're not, um, like, so how should we say, um, if you're trying to learn astrology, um, and you just use, let's say the correspondences of the majors to the signs and planets, you're going to end up with a kind of funny idea of what the planets and signs do. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, they're, they're, how should we say, I, I feel like getting to know that system is getting to know what facet of that sign, um, we're talking like, let's say with a hero fan, like in mm-hmm. what ways is that Taurus or what, 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 uh, what part of Taurus are we looking at? Because there's lots of Taurus that doesn't have anything to do with the hero fan. Right. And so for me, a lot of it was like, well, why? And then discovering, you know, discovering the why and be like, okay, that's the, that's the linkage. Um, and just because there's a connection between two things doesn't mean they're identical. Right. That's right. Well, you know, when you say that if you were to learn astrology just from looking at the deck, that would be a really funny view, view of the delineations. It's also true that if you were to look at, the world and reality just through what you see on the deck, that would be a pretty funny view of reality too. You know, it's only a tiny sliver of what every card has access to on each card on the surface of it. Yeah. Well, I I think that to a certain degree that depends on how you relate to the cards. Mm -hmm. Um, So to give uh, hey, it's due um, in (laughs) windows I, I view, you know, I view the cards as windows mm. into archetypal dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, an archetypal in a more platonic than Jungian sense. Mm-hmm. I, I guess to a certain degree, I look at cards as like a freeze frame in a movie, like that there, and there's so much more that you could depict with any one card than you could, than you can depict. But because it's a it's a static two dimensional image, you gotta you gotta pick your battles, right? But I, I feel like you know in a more in a in a different in a different world, um, each of them you know each card would be like a twenty minute short film <laughs> um, that's very thematically coherent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I look at a card, like I just I I remember I I start thinking about everything I know about that short film. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, when you title a book, the title is not the book. It's just this tiny little facet that allows you to get a sense of what the book might be like. I think of that when I think of tarot keywords like, you know, um, the Lord of Failure, for example, (laughs) just to pick one. On the other hand, I know you do have an argument with some of the correspondences, particularly you don't like the court system that the golden dawn came up with oh yeah with the uh the the chunks of the zodiac yeah yeah, the interlocking yeah i think that's very clunky Mm. and i i I haven't so with a lot of the um so with the decanic correspondences and with the planet sign correspondences Mm -hmm. i i will literally you know i'll i'll be reading for a person or i'll reading for myself and a let you know a card comes up where it's like oh you know it's a high priestess like 
you know, what's the issue? It's the moon. And I mm-hmm. look at the chart and it's like, oh, well, this moon, this person's moon is being conjoined by Saturn. Of course, the issue is the moon. Right. And so yeah. just experientially, I find that um, the non-court attributions happen as they should. Like those cards will come up pointing to the thing in the chart, which should be pointed, which the astrology itself points to. Yeah. Whereas um, I don't, you know, the the thing about the the court is that they're they're fundamentally uh, elemental permutations. They're carry they're the character of uh, well, how should I say? They're elemental permutations as agents or as actors. Um, you know, fire has an action on a, on a particular you know on a circumstance. Well, yes, I mean, I think that it's interesting when I think about the elements as used as deployed in the courts i i think of the first part of the equation you know so suppose we're talking about the queen of swords as the watery part of air right mm-hmm. i i don't think of it as like a combination of water and air no. it is that part of air which has the watery quality of connecting of having uh non-galen qualities you know Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and we're not talking about the physical qualities of water we're talking about what water does and how it behaves Mm -hmm. right so water as a as an actor Mm -hmm. right that part of air so that's a distinction which i find very helpful within the court system of attributions i find that yeah i actually find the zodiacal attributions pretty tricky to work with for courts well so just to try to finish my point like okay so the no it's okay the um so the court is primarily referencing elements Mm -hmm. and then zodiac signs reference elements too yeah and so they um the court and the zodiac both can connect via their connection with elements that's having a friend in common that's not being friends right in practice, I've found that the elemental stuff actually works pretty well um, for clients just on a general level. You know, it's like rather than saying that the Queen of Wands is, you know, cardinal fire, so she has to be Aries, you know, they'll see it and they'll say, you know, it's Aries or Leo or Sagittarius. You know, it'll mm-hmm. come up like that for people, you know, and they'll identify in that way. But the courts are just. You know, I think that people hate them because they don't give you a lot, you know, to work with on the surface. They give you something very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, as far as like how long it's taken different portions of the tarot to seamlessly click, the mm-hmm. court, um, it, the, the court took so much longer to click than the minors. I felt it depended so much on lived experience. Yeah, just yeah. for me. Yeah. Like I, I got the majors and I got the one through tens. Those all made sense. And it took a long time. It, it's taken a much longer time to get super comfortable in the same way uh, to get seamless with the court. Yeah. And also there's that, you know, fundamental issue that people deal with with courts immediately. You know, is it you or is it somebody else or is it the situation, right? Uh, or, or is it being, is it describing like multiple figures, one of which might be you? Cause every now and again, I'll get one where I'm, you know, and I'm talking with a client, I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh God, it's them and it's their adversary and it's somebody <laughs> trying to help them. Well, like, that's the thing, right? That's the thing. It's like over time. I've come to realize that they're all the same thing. You know, the energy of that card is the same. The thing that it's the, the, the 
experience that it's causing that person to have is the same thing. It doesn't really matter who's the, you know, apparent source of it. You know, when there's a conflict, there's more than one person involved and it doesn't really matter which person it is, you know, the conflict exists. And that's one thing I found about courts is that usually I can let the person decide which facet of the situation they want to ascribe it to, but I can tell them pretty exactly just from the feeling of the card what it is that they're going through. I know if they've gotten Queen of Swords that they've separated from somebody and they can figure out who it is if they want. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so one one thing I was going to say about how uh, – one connection I found between the court and astrology yeah. is that um, if you take um, if you take all the planets in a chart and you give them you give them points. This is a very common thing. It's done yeah. twenty different ways. Right. But the basic idea is everybody gets points, and then you and then you look at ratios of elements, mm-hmm. right? And when you do that, you're like, oh, this person's got a bunch of fire, a bunch of water, a little bit of earth, and almost no air. Yeah, right. And you just pick the top two, mm-hmm. um, and then you 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 know if there's one that's dominant, and then a strong secondary, and then you code that into. You code that into the court. Mm-hmm. That often gives you a perfect description of that oh, as a person. That's interesting. I'm going to use that. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's it's just something I because I, I learned to do that little coding thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you just just looking at elemental ratios, like I don't know before I was even any good at astrology. <laughs> um, and so yeah. and and the card that I always get that that stands in for me in the court is exactly my elemental ratio. Same thing for my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's. You know, that, that, and not everybody has a clear ratio. Like some people, yeah. you know, you code it, it's like people are like five water, four fire, mm-hmm. 4.2 earth, and, you know, yeah. and 3.9 air, where, you know, you don't get a clear answer. But in the <laughs> cases where you have a clear uh, primary, secondary, um, a lot of times that's who, that's how that person will end up being represented in the, uh, in the court. And that was something uh, I was asking you about and we were mm-hmm. talking about is just through familiarity, the people in your life that, you know, that pop up in your readings because they're in your life, like because you married them or because, yeah. um, uh, you know, they're your parents or whatever. Yeah. Um, the tarot, the tar- tarot likes to give people almost nicknames. They're like, yes, oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> oh, you mean the queen of blank? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you see then you're like, oh, yeah, that's grandma or whatever, because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how grandma always shows up. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's that's uh, that's an experience many re- readers can relate to. Uh, my, uh, my son almost always comes up as knight of swords, you know, Aquarius fencer <laughs> guy <laughs> right. whose attitude towards the world is a valuable one and one of constant argument. So, um, so that it's, it's, it's helpful to, um, personify the court, I think, but it's not the final answer either. No, you know, it just helps you get there. But I do like it when the court's literally just referring to a single person. In that case, you're yeah. like, oh, you're the perfect card for this. <laughs> but, it, but when you have that like constellated, overdetermined, um, like three people are playing the same, you know, role at the same time. Like, uh, you know, I, I'll generally look for clarification. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, actually, I'd like to go right into Deccans just because 
I don't want us to like run out of steam later. Okay, and, yeah. Um, and decans are obviously let's, crucial let's to all decan. of this. <laughs> of course, as you all know, Austin literally wrote the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 36 Faces, which we refer to on the show constantly. And uh, my copy's battered and bruised, so I sure hope that second edition's coming out soon. <laughs> Working on it by Christmas. <laughs> Excellent. So first of all, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about something that really confuses a lot of people who are new to astrological correspondences in the decans. And that's the difference. You know, when you talk about, well, let's start right at the top. You say two of wands is Mars and Aries and it's Mars governing the first decan of Aries. It's not Mars transiting. Right. And I, I think that people will say, you know, we'll get a little bit confused by what they're used to hearing as Mars and Aries meaning. So can you sort of pick out yeah. that distinction a little bit? Well, so first of all, the uh, the decans are a result of dividing the ecliptic or the, you know, the, the path that the sun and the moon and the planets go through in the sky, which is a band that we see, right? It's not the whole sphere. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at these... Uh, image of the solar system from outside the solar system. It looks like everybody is basically on a plate or on a single plane. Um, we're looking at that from the side when we look up at the sky. And so that plate has a certain thickness, right? And that band, um, that, that band is, that's the, that's the space we're dividing into signs and then into decans, right? So the decans are division of that 360 degree band uh, into 36 sections. And so decans are primarily a space, mm -hmm. right? They're places and they're places where certain things happen. They're, they're places where, um, they're places where you encounter certain things, where you're challenged, uh, in certain ways. They're, you know, they're scenes in mm -hmm. a cyclical drama. And so planets then have a relationship to those places. Um, to take the two of wands, for example, you know, uh, if we just look at the rider weight, right, we're looking out at the world and thinking about how we're going to conquer it or shape it or, you know, bring it into conformity with our will. And that is, a um, by definition, uh, if we're coding that in terms of planet, that is very much a martial impulse, right? And so the cards have, <sighs> the cards have one set of planetary decan or planet decan uh hookups uh encoded on them it's you know it's literally on the label in the thoth deck um and it's <laughs> the key you know, is in the name <laughs> right? but the decans themselves have there are a couple different systems for looking at what planets have what relationship to that space mm. right and there's spaces uh they're potentiating spaces right um and um, rulership is sort of the short version of saying like, oh yeah, this rules that. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. That'll serve just fine to sh as shorthand. But, um, the relationship is a little bit more complex. Yes. I was just reading what you wrote about dignity in 36 faces, which I like a lot. And you talked a little bit, and maybe you can expand on this about the kind of individual agency that the planet has that's a different kind of dignity, really. It's not. It's not the dignity of its rulership or exaltation. But oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. dignity by face. So, mm -hmm. um, one of the important gears and wheels in astrology 
um, is dignity or essential dignity specifically. And essential mm -hmm. dignity is um, understanding the relationship between a planet and the piece of sky that it's in. And the sort of first layer of that is a planet ruling a sign, right? So if Mars is in Scorpio, which it rules, then it's in, it's in its own house, right? Um, and then there are, in the Western tradition, there are um, generally five layers of, of that. And so you, you know, you say, oh, well, it doesn't rule it, but it has, it's exalted there. Mm -hmm. So that it has that kind of relationship. And so all of these are described in terms, well, I'll give the, um, I'll give Bonatti's teaching metaphor, which I think is replicated more or less the same in Lily. Mm -hmm. Bonatti is, uh, um, the most, uh, probably the most, uh, famous, astrologer of the italian renaissance so famous that he's being tortured in dante's inferno because dante <laughs> didn't like him but we have about a thousand pages of his work which is pretty awesome uh for checking in on how were people thinking about astrology during the italian renaissance and in teaching um essential dignity but says okay if a planet is in a sign that it rules then it is like a sovereign in their castle they get to basically do whatever the hell they want, right? And so that's the the sort of maximum amount of how should we say command and control yeah. you can you can have yeah. over a given area. There's also responsibility, right? There. With power comes responsibility, right? That's yeah. like um, a contemporary uh, metaphor for that would be owning. You're in a house that you own. And so, yeah, you I see can, that's very much on your mind right now. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But you can, and so you can do whatever you want in your house, but you do have to live with it, right? right. Then there's a uh, planet uh, having essential dignity by exaltation, and that's uh, that's that's being uh, like an honored guest somewhere. Bonatti also gives us being a high-ranking magistrate in a kingdom mm. where you get to interpret the law, right? That's mm -hmm. what that means. Yeah. It means you know you don't have the the total power of the of the sovereign but you know you get to be like yeah the law says that i get to keep this and you don't right <laughs> and it means that you're in a position where other people have to come to you um to have their affairs decided and then we go down another notch and that's uh, triplicity dignity and, and benani says oh it's like being a citizen mm -hmm. you have rights god damn it mm -hmm. right you have a passport well yeah. and then there's dignity by bound also called term and he says oh that's like um being in a country and you're you've got family there but you're not a citizen it's absolutely the like the immigrant situation where it's like yeah might need to steer clear of um of the authorities but i've got family here i've got connections i can make a life and then at the very bottom of the list is dignity by face or dignity by decan and when a plan and this is really significant because it's a different it, it, it operates on an entirely different logic than the previous four. So, yeah, decanic dignity is described by Banati as someone who is in a foreign country and all on their own, but they have some special potency, some skill that is all their own, and so they make their way based on that alone. Yeah. Now, why, why so different? A couple different reasons. I would say one... Decans are older than any of these other uh, planet sign or planets. Uh, they're just space. special, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're uh, the astrolog when astrologers were kind of figuring out what to do with decans 
at the dawn of what we would recognize as astrology about 2,000 years ago, the Deccans were at least 2,000 years old at that point. Um, probably older, but that's you know archaeologically we can we can make uh, we can prove that the Deccans were at least 2,000 years older than that. And so um, there's something different and special and weird about the Deccans. <laughs> I would also, so there are a couple different things. Um, Part of the original context for the Deccans um, seems to be some of the divinization of the Pharaoh or re-divinization of the Pharaoh protocols, which were used. And so the, we have this idea of making divine the individual, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not the same as like, here's a kingdom or here's, here's a position, all of the other forms of essential dignity refer to a positive actor space relationship that is a consequence of something external, like you're born a king or a queen, right? Or you get the job as a magistrate, whereas the decanic is uh, inside out, whereas all the others are outside in. Right. And so, and that does seem to be part of the character of the Deccans. Um, there's also. Some of the things I've I've stumbled across and had referred to me since I wrote 36 Faces keep pointing in that direction. One of them is that the decanic division in uh, some schools of Vedic astrology is considered to be a martial division. Um, and then it shows it can be used to show the, the potency of the individual in action, right? Which is another sort of... Um, agent acting on the landscape rather than vice versa. Uh, there's also um, a somewhat obscure list of the Deccans with stones attributed to them, which are to be used if the planet in that Deccan is anchoring a Raja Yoga, mm-hmm. uh, which would be um, basically a, a success uh, a success combination in the chart. Um, and so you have that, that uh, association again, with self divinization um, and the decans, or you know, yeah, and then you also have the fact that they're called faces, and that you also see decans in medical astrology as um, a, a, a refinement of the planet, or excuse me, of the signs, the zodiac signs' relationship to and mapping onto the body, and so we have this, uh, you know, the the decans, and therefore the thirty six uh, pip cards. Um, are mapping the body of the life, the different territories and zones mm-hmm. uh, in a way that other uh, other divisions in astrology and other types or sets of cards and tarot don't do. Right. And, you know, when I first came to learning the uh, decanic correspondences and learning about uh, Lily and Bonatti, I, I really felt that there was something missing because, you know, why why are we as tarot readers abnormally sensitive to decanic dignity as opposed to the others? I mean, since you can you can use you can use concepts of dignity in the majors, but you know, in terms of triplicity and bound dignity, it's not like. There's an obvious way that's represented. Right? No, well, and part of that is number, like mm-hmm. the tarot. Yes, like the, that's the tarot, it. it all, the tarot it's is, all driven by number. Yeah, the tarot. Like if you have four sets of ten, and then one of each of those sets is inherently general and speaks to the quality of the rest of the cards. Like the aces are indeterminate. They're it's just fire. 
right? <laughs> or it's just earth. You know, they set the stage, but then you have a set, a set of meaning, a meaningfully distinct set of 36 that's going to resonate with other meaningfully distinct sets of 36. If, for example, so there are five bounds mm -hmm. in each sign, so that's 12 times five. Um, so that gives us, um, wow, well, can I not do 12 times five? 60. Yeah, that I was mm -hmm. going to, yeah. So if we had like a set of 60 in the tarot, it would most likely, or in a card system, it's probably going to end up resonating very strongly with an archetypal 60, which is what the bounds are. Right. Although we would then be arguing over the irregular distribution of the degrees across the bounds. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and we would be arguing about which, whether we're using Ptolemaic or Egyptian bounds. And, <laughs> you know, but. And, oh, the arguments were missing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I really like the idea that there's this 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 notion of individual agency because that seems very compatible with my idea of how the minor arcana work. They're just especially in the Rider Waite Smith cards. I think you get this these little scenes of people doing ordinary things or relatively ordinary in the context of the world mm -hmm. they're set in, and I feel like the minors are you know, in a way, a, a manual for life or, you know, a way for us to um, deal with that which we have control over in our own behavior. Yeah, yeah. So, and then I said before, the Deccans are spaces, right? Mm -hmm. That's literally what they are in the sky. I feel like the 36 um, pips are the spaces in which we are called to action. They're to, to reference our narrative talk earlier, they're the scenes that the life's narrative life life's narrative weaves through and in those scenes we can be powerful or powerless and we're challenged by particular dynamics and so in astrology if you had the planet that rules or has that primary relationship to that decan in that decan then you in a sense you have mastery over that scene that 136th of life is like that set of dynamics is something you know how to do yeah so mastery over that scene we're talking about something that's different though than the you know than the, the, the than the planet in the sign of its rulership i mean how would you draw that distinction the dec uh, decanic rulership is much more specific. Mm -hmm. um, it refers to um, so a planet. Well, let me let me use the example. I think you have don't you have Venus in Aquarius one? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so five of swords. Mm -hmm. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I think as far as uh, tarot Rider Waite Smith, uh, or yeah, as far as Rider Waite Smith decan matchups that's one of the cards that matches up least well um yeah so uh venus is uh often taken to be the ruler of the first decade of aquarius five of swords and so the way that i read that space um as a decan and as a card is that it's about intentionally leaving the protective confines or, or the oppressive confines of where you grew up, who you grew up with, it's striking out on your own or being forced to strike out on your own. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that exile, intentional and otherwise, exile or banishment mm -hmm. um, or pioneering, if you want to mm -hmm. put it that way, is crucial to understanding that space. And in most cases, it's uh, when it's intentional 
or even if it's unintentional, you know, you find what's beyond the city walls. You find uh, you're banished from the the fortress of the known. And, you know, you wander and you discover some wonderful things out there. Sure. And that's the, and you also realize that you can make good without, you know, without the support of uh, all the things within the city walls. Right. So in terms of your lived experience of this placement. Yeah. I've always done uh, the, the weird's been good to me. You know, my, <laughs> I, I've been, uh, I've really, I, I've, I've taken great, I, I've found, I've uh, experienced great joy mm-hmm. as a result of, you know, those various voluntary and involuntary exiles. Um, and I found a ton of cool stuff. Um, and it's, it's a real source of pleasure for me. Yeah, I have, um, I have kind of, I have a fair amount of decanic dignity, I guess, in my chart, because I've got sun in Virgo one, and that's eight of pentacles. I've got and you totally do. Mm-hmm. You have that. You and have I have that. Uh, moon in uh, Aquarius three, so okay. that's seven of swords. Mm-hmm. And I've got Mercury in Virgo three, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know ten of pentacles. Mm-hmm. And then I actually do have Saturn in Taurus and Jupiter in Gemini, but I don't think it's the right decans because that would give me seven of pentacles and eight of swords if it were, but it's not. Well, it's it's definitely, particularly in the case of the moon, it's helped me get a much better sense of that card than I think. I've given it a lot more leeway than people normally do. A lot of people have a lot of trouble with the Lord of Futility. Mm-hmm. I happen to like it a lot. You know, it can manifest, I call it the card of the divided mind. And it can mm-hmm. manifest very much as, you know, as distraction and procrastination and sort of shooting yourself in the foot. But it can also be just a resourcefulness and a comfort in strange places, you know, and just adjusting and finding your way like Odysseus, you know, things happen and you deal with them. That makes a lot of sense. The way I read the the moon there and the moon's special relationship to that Deccan is it's, you know, you are leaving, right? It, it mm-hmm. is that I'm taking my swords, um, but it's what do I need? Like, what do I actually need and how do I get my needs met if I'm leaving, right? Right. Um, you know, what? Uh, so there are, you know, there are a number of swords pictured there and the figure is taking some, but not all, assuming that the swords are not identical and you can only take five or three, you know, however many you get to take, right? You have to then decide what do I need versus, you know, what can I leave? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like when you're packing your bags for a trip, you know, you kind of comes down to the essentials. And, and actually, I think that's kind of a metaphor in a way for the way that when you travel, you discover who you are in a more sort of fundamental way, because you're stripped down to, you know, to this narrow set of qualities that come out in situations where you're not familiar and where you have to make your way. Yeah, absolutely. And you also find out when you're traveling, you know, you look at your bag, and you're like, why did I bring all this shit? <laughs> like, I didn't need to bring this, right? You get that kind yeah. of revelation as well. Yeah. So how about though, let's, let's look at the opposite situation where, you know, where you, where you have a planet placement that is not matched up with the Deccan that it, you know, that it rules or has a relationship with. How do you, how do you parse that relationship? You know, just choose anything from your chart, right? Okay. So a couple things. Um, one, there's no such thing as like as negative decanic dignity. Right. So with the signs, you can have a planet that is in its fall in a sign, sure. which is a, a special difficult relationship, sure. or you can have a planet that's in its detriment. 
so with most of the other forms of dignity, you don't have like, there's no penalty condition. There's just, if you, if there's a matchup, then you get bonus points, mm. right? That said. Well, I'm not just talking about strength, but just how you combine those qualities. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so every, every Deccan, right? Every minor or every, every one of those 36 is is a circumstance. It's a scene, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so on a visual level, you know, you can take an archetypal image of that planet and then put it in that situation. Right. So let's do, let's do, I don't have this, but this is what comes to mind. Okay. Mars in Taurus three, which would be Mars in the seven of, of coins. Yeah. yeah. And so immediately, how does that work? Uh, does Mars like sitting around waiting? No, no. Yeah. So that's a that's yeah. you can just tell you're like oh that's well who's happy in the seven of pentacles? I mean I suppose you would assume that Venus is happy in the seven of pentacles, but you know it's just it's a tough card to Saturn's all right there. Saturn's all right there. Obviously, Saturn can yeah. wait. Yeah. Saturn yeah. Uh, Saturn is also yeah. probably prepared yeah. for whatever difficulties will come. Saturn so- is is the decanic ruler. Right. And you can just see like, oh, no, Saturn, that Saturn makes more sense than the moon, the sun, than any of the others. Yeah, patience and lessons learned. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you could stick Mercury there, mm. right? And Mercury might be able to, Mercury will be able to tell you a lot about that situation and mm. about maybe how to avoid getting into that situation. Mm. Mercury will have lessons learned type of, type okay, of well, stuff no, to back tell you. for a second, because let's think about Mercury in its own, um, in its own card of that sign, which is five of pentacles, right? Mm-hmm. Mercury and Taurus one. So most people read the five of pentacles as a pretty difficult subjective experience mm-hmm. so what is the nature of mercury's dignity there so uh like some decans mm-hmm. and some cards are posing problems some are the result some are like triumphs that are the result of previous good decision making right mm-hmm. and so the five is definitely opposing a problem the five of coins is a posing a problem decan right or the first decan of Taurus, right? Five of uh, Pentacles coins. Right. And so I see, I had this uh, particular, I don't want to call it revelation, but um, this idea about the, the Five of Pentacles bloomed in my mind, I don't know, 15 years ago, and it's always stuck, is that part of what we see in the Rider-Waite-Smith um, five of uh, five of pentacles is a fear hallucination. Mm-hmm. It's oh my god! If I don't get my shit together, I'm going to end up broke, wandering around the snow. I'm going to die alone, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the card, the name of the card, tells Lord us yeah. that it's uh, that what we're seeing in that image is primarily a mental image rather than a physical circumstance. Some of the mm. cards will give us a situation that's primarily physical. That one is a worry about concrete things. Mm. And so it's it's usually a looking ahead to a possible negative outcome, right? And so um, if we look at, for example, Agrippa on the first decan of Taurus, it's, um, it's basically a guy plowing. I think he's mm-hmm. naked. Um, and she says, oh, this is the art, uh, this, you know, in this deck and we see the art of dividing the land, the science of geometry. Yes. It's very mercurial the way he describes it. Yeah. Right. But, but also very physical mm-hmm. and it's 
it's the question of what do you plant in your fields, right? That's that's what the art of dividing the land is. And yes. so and so, you know, literally we're planting so that we can avoid the wandering around naked in the snow part. Yes, and that actually is, you know, as a gardener, that's that is the first step after you've broken the soil is to, you know, figure out what you've got room for, to literally count your peas or whatever, and to figure out how far apart they need to be. Mm -hmm. It's it's an extremely, you know, cerebral sort of way of doing something very organic. But you have to do it. And I think you and there's know, anxiety there, because what if you do absolutely. it wrong and these die? And what if you're a farmer and that determines whether your family eats that winter? Then you're like, oh, I hope I don't fuck it up. I hope I don't fuck it up. Yeah. And we were talking about this last night. I mean, just how the agricultural metaphors kind of work so beautifully in that sequence of five, six, seven of pentacles or coins. You know, and I think I always think that the the five looks ahead and the seven looks behind in a sense. You know, the five 100%. anticipates what's what it's trying to achieve in the six. The seven looks back and evaluates what happened. Yeah, like, well, if I'd made different decisions in the five, <laughs> there's plenty of time to think in the seven. Yeah, and I think that's generally true of the five, six, seven sequence throughout all four suits, really. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We well, just talk, I want to yeah. go. I want to just answer your question: mm -hmm. Why Mercury? Mm -hmm. Why is Mercury good there? Mm -hmm. Because Mercury represents the um, powers and capacity you need to do the five well. That's mm -hmm. a mercurial labor, like doing all that calculation and division. And okay, the you know the peas need to be exactly six inches away from here. These are going to need to be watered twice a week. Don't overwater. Seven mm -hmm. ounces of water. You know, like that's yeah. a, that's Mercury. There's no other planet that yeah. can help you ace that as well as Mercury. You know, it's really funny. Last year, I got the Five of Pentacles like off the charts more than any other card. I have a relationship with it, and it was uh, you know like twenty one times. Nuts. And I often got it on a Wednesday, which I was okay with because, you know, Mercury. But the funny thing is that Wednesday is traditionally my grocery day. So mm. I'm, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, in the stores figuring out how to provision the family, how to budget, what we need exactly. So I never really minded getting it in a way, you know, although except the times when I would trip and have a leg problem, which is also seen in that card and also happens when I get that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So for me and probably a number of other tarot people, I, you know, like I said, I, I, I see the image that is on screen, right? Frozen on the screen of a given card mm -hmm. um, as the flyer for a movie. Yes. And that there is a, a, a deeper, more complicated archetypal core that nonetheless has a very distinct flavor. And so I try to, or I try to, what happens is I, I will, I, I inevitably develop opinions about the way that that archetypal core is represented in a given deck. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, and I feel that in the case of the five of pentacles, that that is shade, the image that is displayed is shaded towards the negative. I don't see it as being, uh, inherently is right. negative. I think right. it's definitely a, a point where decisions need to be made and plans need to be laid. It's, um, I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily. Whereas the card on, on the surface, like, oh, you're 
homeless and it's fucking right. cold. Right. This is terrible, right? <laughs> right, right. And people freak out when they see it. And I mean, I think that's the that's the ideal. That's the goal for me in interpreting really any card. I mean, the idea that it's not inherently positive or negative. And yet, at the same time, I find myself saying all the time, what a nice card or what a nasty card. And to be clear, I think some cards in relationship to each other are more positive or negative. Mm. And then any of those can have a representation, which is more positive or negative relative to what it, uh, you know, what it essentially is. So we could have a super sunny version of the, uh, we could have a version of the five that's way sunnier than the five actually is. Mm -hmm. But I would say that uh, the six is a better card than the five in terms of human favorability. Yeah. From the perspective of the experience of the human. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and as we were saying before, you know, every system is viewed from the point of view of the human. So it makes you wonder. Well, and of specific <laughs> humans who lived and painted at a particular time. Yeah, there's definitely that going on. So how do you combine, and I've asked you this before, but I think other people should hear it. How do you combine other dignities? So you know, for example, I don't know, Moon's Exaltation in Taurus and the Six of Pentacles, since we're talking that. Well, that's the bad example because it's not mixed. I mean, there's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's got the decanic rulership and it's also got the exaltation. So, you know, it's extra special and nice. But what about when it's like, you know, um, what's an example of something that's, that's, uh, in detriment, like Four Venus and Virgo? Wands. Okay. Yeah. I went for the other one. Yeah. You went for Venus and Aries. I went for Venus and Virgo. And we could do Venus and Scorpio too. We've got all three. <laughs> yeah. Lucky us. It was four of wands, seven of cups, and, uh, nine of pentacles. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll just start with, um, with Aries really yeah. quickly. So Venus is considered to be in detriment in Aries. Um, when a planet's in detriment, it means that it's opposite, it's home sign. It is therefore as far away from home as possible. It's in a foreign place where the rules are really different. In the case of Venus and Aries, Aries is a bombastic, fiery, kinetic, self-oriented, individually focused sign. And Venus is you know, about connection and trying mm. to make friends and appreciate mm. the beauty of things. Mm. And so if, you know, Aries is in many ways a sweaty locker room, right? <laughs> and so, you know, Venus has to really dig for aesthetic inspiration there. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, Aries being a Mars ruled sign and being very individually focused um, is happy to have people separate and go their own way. Well, Venus is trying to get people to stay friends. Mm. Right. That's Venus's job. Mm -hmm. And so there's a challenge for any planet that's in its detriment. Now, uh, we add to that, but the third decan of Aries is ruled Lord by Venus. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I will, I'll just use some examples from life. So the people, uh, so Marilyn Monroe had mm -hmm. that. Uh, and so did the actor Jack Nicholson, or I mm -hmm. believe he's still around. He's just, kind of old and not in movies anymore. Mm -hmm. So He's both, around. so what's interesting is we get, um, we get that Venus ruling that Deccan superpower. Um, one of Venus's ability, one Venusian superpower is charisma and the ability to draw people to you. Do those, oh, yes. those people, those are, you know, if you put those in the top 10 most charismatic public figures of the second half of the 20th century, you wouldn't get fought too much on that. Incredible charisma bombs, mm. right? Now, mm. if we grade on another Venusian signification, 
which is the ability to uh, sustain harmonious relationships. Um, I believe Jack Nicholson was married seven times. <laughs> and, you know, Marilyn Monroe's uh, dalliances are well known. Yeah. And so it one doesn't cancel the other. You have the right. Venus and Aries problems. You have the Venus and Aries three excellence. So the, the the real point is that you get both. Yeah, you get both. You get both. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, my experience of that card is, it's it's very interesting card, right? Because it's the majors that it correlates to are the empress and the emperor. So, mm-hmm. you know, marrying mm-hmm. a lot <laughs> kind of makes sense, right? Well, and it, it'll bring people together. It'll fuse them in that hot moment. But right, it doesn't. But it's temporary. It's too hot to sustain connection. Like if you know, water, uh, fire is separative, mm. um, largely, and water is connective. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of fire going on. Um, yeah. It's it's too hot. Um, again, fire can fuse and bring together under certain circumstances. Yeah. But that's not fire's main job. Well, in my experience of this card, the evidence of its debility has to do with how short it is really, you know, um, that's what I've found. I've, I've seen people get it as the wedding, not the marriage, you know? Yeah. I've seen, I've, I get it all the time for like birthdays, people's birthdays. So you celebrate on the day, you know, yeah, 100%. but then it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Um, years ago when I was mapping plot structures to suits, I was mapping, uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm, um, neat. and so the I, I see the the four of wands as when Frodo what crew, Rivendell yeah when they get to Rivendell <laughs> yeah it's the it's like yeah. the end of an arc and it's like oh you know oh, the Jesus team- do you know I'm pretty sure on my blog post I have a picture of Rivendell um for the four of wands deck in oh the really awesome. yeah I don't think I ripped it from you but if I did sorry I, yeah I don't know if I've ever mentioned that but that was like something <laughs> I came up with in my mid twenties when yeah. I was doing that but yeah, yeah that's. It's, but that's just what it is. It's, right? it's what like, it is. Oh, this is a yeah. great moment, and there's a bunch of shit coming. Yeah, you know, stay yeah. tuned. Yeah, I get it for rental apartments too. <laughs> you know, it's just like this place. Well, like here, we're we're recording this literally in a dorm. You, you know, know what I've gotten uh, for funerals? I've gotten the four inverted. Oh, that's interesting. Right, it's the misery party. Yeah. Not every funeral is that, but some yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah, are. Yeah. Or the attempt to put some grace into what is a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think that that's true. And at the same time, there's another factor, which we haven't really talked about, but which the Golden Dawn certainly um, used as a way of determining the positive or negative expression of the planet in the card. And that is uh, Kabbalistic dignity, which is a thing, right? So so the reason that, for example, let's look at the other Venus in her detriment card, which is Seven of Cups, mm-hmm. right? Venus in Scorpio 3. And in that case, you know, I actually don't find that such a terrible card, but Curly did. And his rationale for that was that, you know, it's seven. It's the Sephir of Netzach, which, although it's technically ruled by Venus, is low on the tree and off the middle pillar. So his view of sevens was that they're inherently difficult because they're, you know, they're so far from the divine source, you know. So that would also be the reason why Venus in fall in the nine of pentacles does okay, right? Because it's in the middle pillar in the, mm. as the nine, the Yesod. Okay. And that's the rationale. I mean, it's more stable. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree that it's mm-hmm. more stable than, um, uh, yeah, than the, than the seven of cups or the four. 
Yeah. I mean, and you can also see that, for example, Kabbalistic dignity in, you know, clearly in the fives, which is the sphere of Gevora. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of off balance shit going down there. <laughs> When there, and it's one of the meaningful differentiations between different cards is experientially, is this, uh, is this a scene where you need to pivot or change your relationship to something? Or, you know, is it a scene where you need to uh, continue along, uh, like with the, the with the mm-hmm. nine, right? With the nine yeah. of coins with Venus, that's, you know, that's keeping your garden clean. You know, that's keeping the, making sure the processes are efficient and they're, they're operating continuously. <laughs> I call it the Martha Stewart card. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's great. Um, and so that, you know, there's a continuous gain from like, you know, it's that 4% gain over time from operating efficiently. Yeah. But you know what? I, I see the evidence of her fall there in the sense that it's, it always comes across as a very lonely card. Well, yeah. Is yeah. that, is that what Venus wants to do? No. No, I suppose right? not. Yeah, I mean, I've I've often found this in practice. I'll get, you know, women coming to me. They're very successful. They've finally, you know, gotten their shit in order. They've completed the mortgage on their home. And they're lonely. You know, they haven't got somebody. And, you know, and I also see the curse of perfectionism in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Detriments, like with Venus and Aries, are situations where the planet is in a space that is inimical or that is contrary to its desires in nature. Falls are more insidious. Mm. Falls, uh, so the, the term, it's the term fall, the term depression is also used and depression as like literally a divot out of the ground. Um, I, what that evokes for me is like holes in the ground or traps where you can get stuck. Falls all have like a, there's like a mind trap for, there's like, it's like there's a trap laid for every planet in the sign of its fall. So the fall for Venus Mm. is getting stuck in the perfection of form. Right. In the beauty and perfection of form. Um, You'll also see people who have uh, Venus in, uh, Venus in Virgo who appear perfectly Venusian. Mm. Right. They're just the, they smell good. They're dressed nice, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they are very uncomfortable inside that. Um, and the thing is because of the nature of manifest form, it can never be perfect. And if you can get it perfect for one minute, then, (laughs) you know, something happens, right? Your seams rip, um, you know, your sock, your sock, your, your perfect socks start to smell bad after a day. (laughs) Um, and so there's no winning that game. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that lesson we see that theme of there only being perfection and change. You know, there's there's only there's only harmony and change is something that we see playing out throughout throughout the sequence of the minors, actually. But yeah, that's interesting. And you know what that makes me think, though, also that astrology really helps you see beyond the surface of the card in such interesting ways. I mean, a really good example of that, I think, is the three of swords, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is one of my favorite cards. Most people- You you and almost nobody else. (laughs) I know, I know, it's nuts. But it really is. I mean, I think that I I sign book contracts when I get this card, you Uh, know? Yeah, I- so the symbol that I chose in faces mm-hmm. was links of a chain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of my private symbols or my private symbolic shorthand for that card is the contract. Yeah, me too. Yeah. The contract is the the contract is a weapon of dread power. (laughs) It is. It is. And you know, inherent in the card is both is the power of the contract for good and for ill, really. I mean, we often see it in situations where people are heartbroken, literally, you know, because of contract issues, you know, commitment and and contract issues. And you can't be betrayed if there was no promise. Right. You can be attacked by somebody, but it's not betrayal. If they promise to do X, Y, and Z, and then they attack you, now it's betrayal. Yeah. And I think that if you're prepared, when you go into that space of this of the uh, Saturn and Libra of three of swords, and you're prepared to commit and you're really truly prepared to forsake all others. It's not going to be the same experience. No. And that's one of the decanic images is literally two people on their way to get married. uh, And it says that they're going to live a very happy life. Yes. Yes. And people are like, what the fuck? (laughs) But that's the thing. I mean, and also, I mean, if you read it in sort of a Marseille way, this is a way of doing it. You can say there's the, there's the person, there's the other person. And then there's the third thing, which is the marriage. Right. So, you know, the third sword can represent that in a, in a way that's, that's um, recognizes that there's another entity in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and are you loyal to that? those vows. Yeah. And then they're always represented in a way so that they're kind of braided together and inextricable. Mm -hmm. Well, and the piercing the heart, I think we can maybe get a a non murderous interpretation (laughs) out of that. Like a, a true vow does pierce your heart. Yes. Right. You dip, you know, you, you dip the quill in heart's blood uh, in order to sign that. If you really mean it. If you really mean it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that at least on some level or some levels that um, a vow or a promise that you've truly made and intend to uphold is something that takes up space inside your heart for the rest of your life. Like you've, yeah. you've allocated that portion of your being to, uh, or you've allocated that portion of your being to that vow. You've, you, you've uh, sort of, decided to take that shape in your actions and your thoughts. Yeah. And if you think about the majors associated with it, you know, that's the world and uh, the, and justice or adjustment. And you, there are your contracts for you. It's the most legal looking of the cards, right? Justice. Yeah. 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 And yeah. yeah in the, in that, that 3d context of the world. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think people have trouble sometimes interpreting Saturn the Malefic in the Deccans because it's associated with the world which people don't experience or or view, you know, as a Malefic. Well, I think that if you just said, oh, it's the world and you didn't have like happy angels or like a cool lady dancing, <laughs> if you just were like, yeah, it's the world, people would get the Malefic Well, part. worldliness, I suppose. Yeah, it'd be like, yeah. oh, it's the world. Carrying the weight of the world. Yeah, the fucking yeah. world. You well, know. well, the other thing is that, you know, I think the key to me symbolically in that image is the wreath, right? Because it's the wall. It's the wall that keeps you safe or the wall that's a prison, right? Mm. And depending which way you want to look at it. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Some people associate the, 
Uh, we were talking about this in the context of the Eight of Pentacles yesterday, but some people actually associate the world card with prudence in the same way that, you know, temperance is temperance, fortitude is strength, justice is justice. Okay. Via virtue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and prudence is special, right? Because prudence gives you the ability to act upon and use properly the other virtues. So, you know, there there is a sort of consonance between that idea of prudence the sort of endpoint of Saturn and the and the world is an endpoint in the sequence of majors. Yeah, I would agree with all that. Yeah, yeah. Come on, disagree, man. We can't just agree <laughs> on everything. <laughs> but it, no, but it, this is interesting to me because I, I've studied other systems of correspondence, right? And they are also internally consistent. But there's a lot of legitimate argument that the Victorian superstructure of correspondences that was, you know, sort of gilded onto the writer Wade Smith is a culturally appropriative piece of trash. I hear of that all the time. And yet there are these sort of really harmonious, beautiful rhymes within the scheme. Yeah, I, I think it's, how do I put it? It is irregular in its excellence mm, and true. Uh, terribility. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as we're, I, I don't know if we record this. We were just talking earlier, and um, I like uh, I like the astrology attributions a lot less for the majors than yeah. I do for the the thirty six. Um, that the the Deccan stuff is pretty. The Deccan uh, two through tens, it's pretty clean. It's pretty clean. Um, yeah. And so what I'll say when I you know when I was talking earlier about what is the essence of this card versus what is this image? I don't see the essence as the image. I see the uh, the image as one gateway into the essence. Um, from a yes. particular angle, yes. if it's a three-dimensional object, then that window can only open at one angle or another. Uh, again, I think short film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, short Psychedelic short film is probably the, the best possible medium for each card. Yeah. If not the best possible medium for reading. We'll see about that. <laughs> um, and so I, I see, you know, I, I think this is true of any set of uh, divinatory tools uh, or just a lot of things in general is understanding the context uh the cultural context from in which that was generated and being able to kind of filter that out be like yeah that was just you know that that was just the beginning of the century at that place in time um yeah. and there are certain habits yeah. that you begin to recognize um and be like yeah they're always going to show this side of an archetype and not this side yeah i think it's really important for people to Oh, God, I hate it when folks say that. But, you know, but I, I really think that in order to make tarot live and breathe for you, you have to be able to see it in your life in a way, in, you have to reinterpret the context comprehensively. I have people coming to me all the time with gender identity issues. And, you know, that's not inherently given to me by the Golden Dawn superstructure of correspondence. Right. right? If, yeah. if anything, if mm -hmm. you're actually getting to what this card is referring to, that um, uh, blessedly lacks a lot of uh, historically bounded the further, human prejudices. <laughs> the further in you go. But um, I want to talk about, you know, the inconsistent images of the Deccans that you've explored so comprehensively in your book. You know, what was it that 
those magicians were receiving and, you know, and how do you see that in the cards? I mean, there are definitely images where they're far less coherent, you know, in yeah, the way well, they add up than so, others, even, both in signification and in image. Yeah. Uh, all right. So couple, uh, I think there are a couple of things going on there. Mm-hmm. One is that, again, the, the Deccans are all artistic short films. They're not, <laughs> they're not freeze frames. And that, you know, we could watch the same film and freeze it at different parts and we would get images that look very different. We yeah. would, if we'd both watch the film, you'd be like, oh yeah, that was the second act that you took that from. We're like, yeah, I, I did the, you know, the opening mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. So there's some of that, which is just, um, you know, blind men and elephants. <laughs> um, then there's also yeah. the translate, the, um, the shitty translation game. Where like so that's fascinating to me the way you can see like the man with a turtle turn into the man with the turtle for a foot you yeah, know, yeah kind yeah. of a thing right yeah, yeah. oh and yeah. so yeah that's actually that's that's your natal dragon isn't it oh that's yeah the Salhif, the salihafa yes 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 the man with the uh, snake in hand um gold Mr gold G- Mr T, Mr. T. gold <laughs> chains around the neck um, turtles and serpents yeah and yeah. big solid feet yes. <laughs> How'd they know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, I actually have a story. I did a talisman for that deck in some did years you? back. Uh, I'll tell you that later. Mm. Um, but uh, so part of it is the translation game where you can see uh, a lot of the, or not all of them, but a significant portion of the decanic images in the Picatrix are actually translations of varying degrees of excellence of... Um, uh, of images which were in the Brihat Shataka several hundred years earlier. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see in the Brihat Jataka images, they'll say, oh, you know, this uh, this man has a horse-like face. Um, and if you look at uh, Indian material from that time, you'll see that animal language is used to describe different um, human uh, physiological types. Um, you can see this in the Kama Sutra, right? It'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, yes, does the man have an elephant penis? It doesn't mean that he actually <laughs> yeah. has an elephant's penis. It's right. it's like a way of coding like, oh, that's, you know, it's large or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and But animal language is used for that. And then you'll see that translated where, well, not that exactly, where um, you'll then have like a half animal, half human figure where they actually have, instead of having a bird-like face, they have the head of a bird. Right. Which is interesting because then if we bounce back to the Egyptian uh, context, which is the origin of the cradle of the Deccans, you do have a lot of theromorphs, right? Mm-hmm. You do, it is represented that way. And there's back and forth there, but what I'm just saying is that there's slippage between translated and passed on material. There's another yeah. big thing is that a lot of the, like in the Egyptian context, uh, and in a lot of the Hellenistic, the Deccans are all ruled by different gods and goddesses. And right. so, but when that Deccanic material goes into a monotheistic context, they don't have those names. You have the image of a god or goddess um, or um, or a figure that represents a class, like the uh, in the first Deccan, uh, or, or yeah, the first Deccan of Scorpio gets associated with nymphs in one list, right? Which is a class, not a single figure. And so, in some later uh, texts, you get 
an image that represents that, but you, the name, uh, the name is gone. And so it's like, oh, it's just a, you know, it's a lady who has this going on, but you don't necessarily know that it's referencing this class of being. And so there, there are a lot of reasons that there's slippage. Some of it's just like legitimate. We watch the same film. We remember different parts. Some of it is bad translation stuff. And some of them are different styles. Like the later European, uh, uh, the later like Western European images for the Deccans tend to be much less uh, phantasmagoric and much more literal. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was going to ask you about, you know, versions of the Latin Picatrix because, you know, Agrippa's, Agrippa's, his images and significations vary, you know, pretty, pretty significantly mm-hmm. in some cases. From the From relative the, to the Picatrix? Because he took, he was using Latin edition of the Picatrix, right? Yeah, but it's not a straight. Um, right. It, he, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't just refer to the Picatrix for okay. the decanic That images. explains why. Yeah. Well, there's also, uh, just for example, there's the Astrolabium Planum. Yes. And, well, that seems to correspond a lot better to Agrippa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the Picatrix would have been a reference, but it, mm-hmm. it's obviously not, it wasn't taken to be the one list that was transcribed for him. Um, yeah. You know, he didn't go with that. And there's overlap, yeah. but it's not the same. And those, and so those Astrolabium Planum and Agrippa images and some other ones from that. Yeah. That span of years, they tend to be much more literal. Where it's like well, the Latin's even different uh, in the Astrolabium Planum, and uh, well, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh no, it's okay. But like, uh, let me think of an example. Um, so okay, so here's a um, crossing about fifteen hundred years. Um, <laughs> so we can have the Liber Hermetis mm-hmm. for Taurus One is a god or spirit figure. It's someone. Um, who has uh, it's uh, an ele- there's an elephant's head and then there are two um, there are two horns like a bull and then standing atop the figure's head is the goddess herself Libra one uh, no Taurus oh, sorry one. Taurus one okay um, and I believe the elephant has two trunks um, oh, you know it's a yeah it's very obviously either you can either say oh that's surreal or two mm-hmm. that's the image of a spirit. Whereas uh, Agrippa says for Taurus one, oh, it's a dude plowing. Right. And so we might be looking at, you know, the spirit of a dude plowing uh, <laughs> with, with our elephant headed figure, but we're looking at the human action with Agrippa. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, those images in the Astrolabium planum are so, they're they're so every day, mm-hmm. you know, compared to what you might expect from other renderings that have come down to us. One one uh, question I have for you, sort of just thinking about decanic magic um, generally, do you think that you can kind of play with image magic using the minor arcana in the same way that you might, you know, work a paper talisman? Yeah, I think that uh, a number of the images in the minor arcana could be deployed or integrated into a Picatrixian image magic operation pretty easily. I've used some, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, uh, as Tony Mack uh, reminded me when we talked on my podcast a while back, um, you know, be thoughtful about the images you use because sometimes you'll get yeah. those really literally, you know, generally speaking, you don't want to use a super, uh, 
an image, for example, if you want to get, if you were to make a talisman for Taurus one, Mercury was there and it was well supported by the moon. You got the day, you know, you got the days and hours, right? How are you going to do that? Right. Um, (laughs) With the card. And you wanted that. Yeah. You wanted the the excellence of, you know, in the art of geometry and dividing the land and all that. (laughs) Um, I would probably not use the five of coins image. Yes. Yes. See what else, how else that, that I would probably use my, my, my naked man digging for that one. (laughs) Yeah. I uh, actually, at, at Newt's, I did a workshop where, they were doing, you know, a really fun card alteration magic where you would punch them and put oils on them and mm. put spells inside them and tie them together and stuff like that. And I had decided, I don't know why at the time, I was really interested in um, working with the magician and the hierophant. So I put together this spell packet with the two of them. And I was like, wait a second, this is ringing a bell in some way. This is This seems familiar. And I thought, oh, God. You know, that's Mercury and that's Taurus. And what do I get if I put them together? Okay, well, maybe it'll be all right. Maybe. <laughs> and so I did a divination. I said, am I going to keep the spell packet or not? And what mm. do you think I got? The five of pentacles. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so I threw it out. I dismantled it and killed it and threw it out. <laughs> yeah, but you might, yeah, you might have been get that part of, you know, I think part of working with cards mm-hmm. is remembering the limit of the grammar of the tarot and i mm. i tend to uh experience divination via tarot as interfacing with some rather clever and uh funny and sometimes very sharp <laughs> intelligence mm. and that the like the it's only got 78 words that's the thing. And so like, yeah. how else could it, even if it wanted to give you the most pot, if it was going to be like, yeah, you're going to have the science of dividing the land. So say, like, how else was it going to say that other than like, yeah, you know, Mercury Taurus, like this yeah, is, yeah, this is exactly. thing, but, but it doesn't have a nice way to say that with the words <laughs> in that deck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You do that bonehead. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I, I that, think that, that's also that's kind of throwing uh, your own reaction to that in your face. Mm-hmm. The tarot was like, "Oh, you're worried about this." Yes, yes, it's true. I know. I it it, it was being a little bit arch, maybe. I yeah. mean, maybe your tarot's not as rude to you as it is to me, but, but mine, on the mine day. would totally throw that in my face. Mm. Like, worried? Are you? Well, really nervous. <laughs> My concern is that I think that spell packet would, would have worked just fine for anybody else, right? It's just that I come preloaded with this stuff. And it's if if I were to set it going like a sigil or an earworm in my brain, it would probably ping that. And, you know, it's not exactly what I wanted. It would probably ping the uh, five of pentacles. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that it's generally constructive to think about ways that you can deploy the miners in particular Mm -hmm. i think that there's there's a lot of juice in them well yeah and and again it's um the the miners are in many cases where the rubber meets the road you know with the major arcana you they're like these grand sweeping themes and but they always have to land in a circumstance um, you know, like the, you know, whatever it is, the lovers or the tower, or they're, they're, you know, they're, they're all huge in my experience. They're, when I was playing the figure out, uh, figure out the plot structure of movies or map the plot structure <laughs> of movies, um, the, the majors that, um, that were connected to the minors 
where it was like, oh, that's the theme that's being explored through all of these scenes. Yeah. Um, and so the the theme is bigger than and contains the the scenes, but there's no communicating that theme without the scenes. Right. Yeah. Now I was thinking that like maybe something that might be good to end on is sort of talking to people a little bit, addressing the issue of something we talked about in the previous segment too, of left brain, right brain issues. Like when you're learning the correspondences, what do you recommend that people do? Do you recommend that they memorize or do you think that that will paralyze them? Well, that, that is, that's, that, that is dependent in no small part on the personality of the student. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I, I would say that in general, and this is with anything, but uh, also specifically with cards, um, you know, learn the, the sort of factory settings meanings and then also have a practice where those meanings are either coming alive by seeing mm-hmm. examples or being challenged by examples and being challenged to become more multidimensional and to be bigger spaces that can hold more. Absolutely. I think that there's a huge process of reconciliation that goes on just in learning the correspondences because they don't always look exactly like you'd expect. No, and sometimes yeah. when they even when they when they even when they are ex- when they match the the little white book exactly. Mm-hmm. It's always uh, it's the 3D version. It, it's got smell. It's got feeling. It's you know it's a whole lived situation. So it's always it's always bigger than just the the math of the situation, which the card is. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that I worry about all the time when I'm talking correspondences with people is that they go into a reading with someone and they're sitting there, you know, and the card comes out. You know, and it's the, uh, I don't know, the the Eight of Swords. And their brain is churning. Well, that's appropriate. Their their brain is churning going, <laughs> what's the correspondence? What's, it's Jupiter. No, it's, not, it's, it's Jupiter and, and Gemini, you know, uh, Gemini 1. And it's like, you know, and that is inimical to the oracular process, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Sitting there yeah. in that space where you're like slicing and dicing and spreadsheeting is not where the message comes from. No, well, I would say the message will work through anything that is already deeply part of your knowledge base, mm-hmm. um, and that it's all the stuff that's that you've gotten to the point of, of you know relatively seamless, where you're not like, oh, what is the thing? But that we can say the same thing about uh, you know learning uh, tarot cards from a tarot book. Yeah. If you have to be like, hold on, let me look it up. What did blah 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 say? Then the, the you know the uh, that. That knowledge is not in a state where it's conductive. Immediately accessible. Yeah. I mean, I I think I use a music analogy for this all the time. I mean, with technical knowledge, it's like you do your scales all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You practice your scales constantly. But (laughs) when you get to the performance, you want to forget all that. You know, you do not want to be there. And if you, and it's another thing, like if you're, uh, I'm sure, you know, I talk with this with my son all the time in athletic performance. You know, you do all kinds of training, but if you question, and I'm sure you think about this in martial arts as well, you know, if you question your footwork or you question the exact position of your hand in the moment that you're doing it, you're lost. 
Oh yeah. You, yeah. I mean, you can note that your, uh, your support foot placement was about 10 degrees off of ideal <laughs> when you threw that kick in the middle of a match, mm. but, um, you, you don't dwell on that. Right. <laughs> right. Right. There goes the match. <laughs> right. You, you, you know, go ahead and dwell on that later when you're like perfecting your form. That's the seven and- of pentacles time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's nothing that can be done now. That's like the waiting for the judge's decision. Right. right? Yeah. So I think just in closing, I'd like to just encourage people to just think about it, reconcile it, struggle with it, wrestle with it. You know, don't think that the answer is going to be just by knowing that it's Jupiter and Gemini one, that that's going to save you the minute you go into the reading. I think it's, 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 it's a, um, it's a stimulant. It's a, it's a uh, precursor. It's something that you take in order to eventually have the product that you use in the reading, mm-hmm. which is your own um, felt meaning that you've derived over, you know, however long it took you to get there. Yeah, I would say that those correspondences give you other angles to investigate what that card, re- like with the totality of what that card means. And that if you've spent uh, if you've spent the time and dedicated the energy to uh, to further exploration, that when that card comes up, you know that card better, and you can you know you you can turn yeah. you can turn it in three directions. Well, it talks to you like a friend instead of like an IKEA manual, <laughs> right? Like it allows you to get familiar with the texture of the dark side of the moon, right? You're not right. like, what is this side of the card? I've right. never seen that before. Yeah, again, it's a, it's a bit like the way intuition works in the context of the reading generally. It's sort of like, you know how it feels. If you know how it feels and you've lived that story, then it's easy for you to go back and tell it, right? Mm-hmm. Not if you've memorized it. Right. Yeah. Or if you've memorized it, but you've never seen it. Right. Like if right. somebody gave you the, I mean, it's like the plot points from a movie, but you've never seen the movie. You yeah. can, you know, you can <laughs> say some things that are true of the movie, but you can't really talk about it with somebody who wants to dissect it on a deeper level. You'd be like, yes, yes I have read yeah. that the themes of uh, uh, father-daughter relationships are explored. But what did you think about <laughs> this scene? What was that saying? I don't know. Yeah, episode right? recaps are no fun if you haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, even better. <laughs> But yeah, and it is a living thing, and it's um, you know the the tarot is referring to life. It's referring to situations which we are part of now, which we're going to be part of, you know, tomorrow, in five minutes, in ten years. Um, and, you know, it's an attempt to give us. Uh, I don't want to say language. I feel like language gets overused. Not that it's wrong. It's but, not wrong, but but it it's. Yeah. Um, it's it's a concise language. It's a language you can carry around in a little pack. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a language in the same way that it is the book of Thoth. <laughs> <laughs> there really isn't getting any getting away from language, really. Even though we could do an entire another podcast on like the way that it teaches you to use visual interpretation in your life. I mean, we could look out this door and you know read it. Mm-hmm. If you're used to reading a tarot Rather card. bucolic. Yeah, it's extremely, and a volleyball net. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We should probably get something to eat, don't you think? Yeah, I do. <laughs> We've been doing this for how long? <laughs> oh, let's not, let's not measure it. Okay. But four hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, anyway, 
Thank you so much, Austin, for coming on the show. And, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation we've had both in both parts, part A and part B. You know, they ended up having a, a different vibe and literally a different location. Uh, yes. I feel like they're, they're, it's, even though it is part of a long conversation, there, there is a distinct quality to each one, which I would view as a success. I also think that's true. You know, for me, I have to just say on a personal note that this is, uh, this has been really wonderful for me because over the years, this is the first time we've met in person. We've known each other for a few years. And over the years, I was telling you that, you know, I've stored up questions for you on my computer and I lo- it's been so long that I keep losing them. And so when I did a search for like Austin cues or questions on my computer, I came up with four separate documents with four completely different sets of questions. And I'm happy to say that we addressed many of them. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I meant to mention this earlier, but I'll mention it now. You know, why do, why do we know each other? You All were right. one of the people who bought 36 faces right when it came out. And I think you were the first, well, maybe not the first email I got about it, but the first email that I liked, (laughs) um, where I forget what your questions were, but you had a bunch of really great questions. And I was like, Oh, this person like, uh, engaged with the material and has a bunch of really good thoughts and points and questions. I can't believe that you remember that. <laughs> yeah, and that was and I was like, you know, you made, years a, ago. you made a really good first impression because as a as a writer, um, what I want most is for someone to and w- what you can dream of is that people intelligently engage with the material you put out. Liking somebody just saying I like it is not nearly as good as Five someone stars, like <laughs> someone engaging, you know. Yeah, and and being like, yeah, this is really interesting. That was amazing. I'm not sure what you mean here. Is this correct? But like, you know, it's okay to like a, a disagreement, which comes out of intelligent engagement, is preferable to um, buttery praise. Well, conversation is always preferable. You know, having. Uh, this is the thing that really made me, you know, get into podcasting and and into this community at all and interviewing people and being interviewed. So I wanted to have the conversation with people. And I'm, I don't know about you, but, you know, in terms of proximity to others in the tribe, it's really hard. It's really hard. And being able to have that conversation in whatever form it takes is priceless to me. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, if nothing else, podcasts are a really good way of creating a space where an extended conversation takes place because we're all we're all busy and we're all pulled in a hundred different directions. And you know, a lot of the communication media which we employ um, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, facilitates the opposite of extended, nuanced, layered, <laughs> you know, meandering conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the the tweet is not the short form of anything useful, really. Yeah, I mean, it's good for like, here's here's something quick and punchy. Yeah. Or you could be like, you should actually spend quality time thinking about this and link somebody to something. But yeah, I get frustrated sometimes uh, with the Twitters, not just because people say dumb stuff, but because people will, God bless them, try to have... A, uh, a discussion about something that's super technical and nuanced with multiple points of view 
basically in public in two sentence bursts. Mm. And it's like the, the format of this means that like the format of this is incompatible with what you're trying to do. You can't solve this. It's reverse powerful is what it is. I mean, it's like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's like, I'm, I think about that a lot when I'm making spells, right? Because you're condensing something into a very tiny, powerful package. And you're not, if you don't say exactly what you mean, which is hard to do mm -hmm. in that compact of form, then you're doing something, you're sending something incredibly potent out into the world that you didn't intend to. Yeah. Um, you know? <laughs> so yeah, there, like there are some things that should be a four hour conversation, not a, a tweeting back and forth. Not that Twitter's, you know, useless, not that these technologies mm. are useless, but, um, you know, you just got to note the lip, what they can't do mm. and what, you know, a good conversation can do. I agree. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Austin. Hopefully we'll have other opportunities to speak again. Yeah, absolutely.